Let's get started tonight. Hopefully, you got your notes. If you did not, you can uh, email me at bishopoldrich at gmail.com, and I'll try to get notes to you after the class. But tonight, we're going to open our Bibles to Isaiah 53, and we're going to talk about the doctrine of the atonement. Uh, I tell you what, this is the this is the steak and potatoes of uh, sound doctrine. You can't, you can't do better than uh, to get into some good atonement doctrine and theory. Uh, at least for a, an amateur theologian like myself, this is, this is the stuff that really I like to sink my teeth into. So hopefully tonight we'll be able to give you a basic outline of what the doctrine of the atonement uh, means to us here today, and hopefully I'll be able to resolve any concerns or questions that you may have about the atonement. I know you probably say, well, this word atonement, this is a kind of a strange word, not a word we use in everyday speech or language, but it's, um, it's, it's a word that comes to us from the, the very earliest uh, scriptures, the earliest stories of the Bible deal with the subject of atonement. And, of course, all throughout the Old Testament and into the Gospels and the, uh, the letters of Paul and Peter and John, um, atonement is a primary theme. One, one uh, person put it this way, if you cut the Bible in any place, it bleeds the red blood of atonement. And that's I think it's a, a nice metaphor. It's very true that uh, you can't go very far in any section of the Scriptures without dealing with this issue of how uh, we sinful human beings are reconciled to our Creator, to our God, through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's, a, that's the basic idea of what the doctrine of atonement is. It is, uh, it is the the way that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, bring human beings into uh, a position so that they can be saved, so they can be delivered, so that they can be forgiven of their sins and set free from the power of sin. And there's no more important teaching or doctrine that, that, we'll, dis that we'll discuss in any of our classes than what it takes to get right with God. And that's the basic idea behind the word atone. Uh, when we atone for something, we're trying to, to, to make up or to, uh, uh, to provide some restitution or in some way to make right uh, something that uh, we have done, some, some sin we have committed, some injury we have caused, some problem that we have caused or contributed to. When you atone for something, you're trying to make it right. And of course, our challenge uh, in studying the scriptures throughout the, uh, or in, in, in all of religion, if you think about even the non-Christian religions, uh, at least those that acknowledge sin and acknowledge uh, evil, uh, you know, there's, there's got to be some kind of mechanism, some kind of of, of ritual or some kind of sacrifice or, or some kind of uh, work to do to make things right between 
one human being and another human being, and then to make things right between a human being and their their God. And for us Christians, of course, this is uh, this is what our whole religion is about. This is what our whole faith is about. Uh, we believe that uh, the scriptures God has revealed to us uh, through His scriptures, through His Spirit, and through His Son, uh, the way to make peace and the way to make things right. And we put all this under this doctrine of atonement. So Isaiah 53, you probably know this portion of Scripture pretty well. I'm actually just going to read the whole chapter because even though there's only a couple of verses included in your notes, uh, obviously I think the whole, the whole message uh, is relevant to what we're going to talk about tonight. But Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. What a powerful, powerful portion of Scripture. And I hope you notice, I tried to emphasize in the reading, but 
Uh, maybe you didn't catch it. I tried to emphasize how many times in these 12 verses mentioned is made that the one who is suffering, the one who is being bruised, the one who is, who is being, uh, uh, being, being oppressed is being treated so not for his own sin, not because he had done anything to deserve it, but he was doing it on behalf of others. Our iniquities, our griefs, our sorrows, our stripes, the chastisement of our peace, our sin is what has led to this, uh, this intercessory mediatorial work that is described in Isaiah 53. And that's where we will begin tonight. Atonement is an intercessory work. It is part of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. We talked about Jesus last week. We talked about that office of prophet and priest and king. And this is part of that priestly office, that intercessory office where Jesus Christ is uh, the, the go-between, the intercessor between God and man. First Timothy chapter 1 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. So the problem is you have a holy God and you have a sinful people. How can a holy God and a sinful people be reconciled? Someone has to come as a go-between, as an intercessor, as a mediator, and perform a work or offer a sacrifice. Um, you know, I was thinking about it tonight. Uh, I was watching the news before I came to the church, and I think all of you are aware or should be aware of what's happening in Israel. And there's, a, you know, there's an escalation in, in, in hostilities, attacks, rockets and bombs and and one of the uh, people being interviewed there uh, basically made the case that uh, someone, a third party, has to come in and mediate the dispute, mediate the, the, uh, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. And until somebody who both sides recognize, who both sides, who has the authority to to, uh, to bring the two sides together and, and, and bring them into a binding uh, treaty, uh, the hostilities, until somebody comes along who can do that, the hostilities and the conflict is only going to continue to get worse and worse. The role of Christ as the intercessor is an atoning role. And atonement depends on that mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Obviously, in any conflict, in any, uh, any dispute, uh, both sides uh, want to get their, uh, their justice, you know, their just due. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26 tell us that we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Atonement is the foundation upon which God is justified and is able to justify those who have faith in Jesus. Um, The question gets asked sometimes by some who are critical or who who do not share uh, Christian faith, of, you know, God is God. He's the one that makes the rules. If, if he wants to just forgive people's sins, if he wants to save people, he can just do it. He doesn't have to go through this whole Calvary and cross and crucifixion uh, uh, ritual. He, he's God. He can do as he pleases. Yet we understand that the principles of justice apply to God as much as they do to apply to any part of his creation. If God's not going to follow the rules, uh, what right does he have to expect anybody else to follow the rules? So atonement is the just way. It is uh, the truest uh, manifestation of the justice of God. Not only is he vindicated, but is also able to vindicate and justify those who come to him through the atonement work of Jesus Christ. So this is the foundational uh, doctrine of justification. It's the foundational doctrine upon which all of salvation depends. Do I have any questions on Romans chapter 3 or any, or any comments so far? Earlier on, when you read from Isaiah 5, the fifty-third chapter, would it would it be okay to say that had not Jesus submitted himself to all that was spoken of him in Isaiah fifty-three, then he would not be able to sit in the office of office priest and king? Well, um, I think it's okay to say that certainly. We don't want to put any parameters on God that he has not already put upon himself. But I think it's very clearly, uh, it's very clear to me that the doctrine of the atonement is very much uh, the point and purpose of the incarnation. So if you think of the doctrine of the incarnation, why did God become flesh? Why did God send his son? and the likeness of human flesh. Why did he take upon himself the form of a man? Uh, It was for this purpose. This was the reason for uh, the word to become flesh, so that he might uh, fulfill this intercessory role this this and do this atonement work. Remember the cry of Christ from the cross. Uh, as, as just before he gave his spirit back to the Father, he cried, it is finished. Uh, what was he talking about? What was finished? That purpose, that task, that mission uh, for which he had agreed to become uh, a human being. Uh, the scriptures teach us 
in other places that this business of the lamb slain was determined before the foundation of the world. This goes back into eternity. This goes back to before. Let there be light. This is this is uh, this is one of the reasons, maybe maybe the chief reason, why the world was created, so that the Son could enter into it, that the Creator could become one with His creation and redeem it. So I, I, I think you're on very solid ground there, brother, to to understand this as the uh, chief or primary reason why Jesus Christ was born. Anyone else have a comment or, 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 or question on that? Pastor, before yes, you go on, sir, I just want to make a comment in Isaiah 53, and um, it's in Jesus that all the purpose of God is fulfilled. So what I would say, everything that Isaiah 53 spoke about um, had to be fulfilled. And the, the work, the redemptive work that Christ um, would not have been completed if all those things, if all the purpose of God was not fulfilled. So that's what I would like to say, add to that Isaiah 53. God, Christ had to fulfill all the, the things that was necessary that God had proposed so that the redemptive work could be finished at the cross. Amen to that. Well, um, you know, there's there's the the verse there in um, Isaiah 53. Let me read it again, so you can you can understand maybe the full scope. But there at the um, in verse 10, there it's actually it's in your notes. Yet it pleased the Lord. To bruise him. I, I, when, I, when I look at that statement, it kind of makes me stop. It kind of says, now wait a minute. You know, the, the picture of that some people paint of the atonement of the cross is sort of this, this angry God, this, this angry creator who wants to destroy his creation, and yet because of the pleading and intervention of his, uh, his loving son, uh, offering himself up instead, uh, you know, his wrath is somehow uh, uh, dissipated, and 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 I think that's an unfair characterization. This this act of atonement was um, was part of the pleasure and will of God. Uh, this was an act of love. And uh, if you read down a little bit further there, it says that uh, his soul has made an offering for sin. So when you think about, so you go back to Leviticus, go back to Leviticus 3, Leviticus 4, read about the sin offerings there. Read the first four or five chapters of Leviticus. You know, the sin offering uh, was a, a means of grace. It was a means of forgiveness. It was a, uh, but it was certainly a violent offering. You know, there's blood spilled. Uh, the lamb is killed. Uh, it is cut up. It is, it is you know, treated, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, today's uh, animal, uh, you know, tree-hugging crowd would not be very pleased with what was done with lambs and 
bulls and goats in the days of the temple. But um, it was all part of this uh, pleasure of God, this will of God to, to fulfill every aspect of uh, atonement for all that was required to be done. And notice this, God could have certainly, I guess we could, some people want to make the argument, I don't, I don't think it's a valid one, but some people want to make the argument that God could have chosen anybody. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. I think this was something that God had to do himself. And that's why he came himself. To do this to anybody else would have been, um, you know, it, it would have been heartless. It would have been, it would have been cruel. But by coming himself and making himself the sacrifice, I think we see something even deeper and more wonderful about the love of God for, for the lost. Anybody else want to uh, comment or, or question at this point? Now, now if, 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 if it please the Father to come himself, and to suffer that, how am I to understand that in light of the scripture that says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I think when we think of the, the actual sacrifice itself, uh, that, that utter... Um, ugliness and and corruption that is sin when that sin uh is is placed on the head of of the lamb of god uh you know the father has to has to turn away he has to abandon the son or forsake the son in that moment so that the son can die if god does not turn away at that moment you know, uh, when we when we think about how is it possible, how is it possible for Jesus to be made sin? He who had done no sin, he who had committed, I mean, even here in Isaiah 53, it says no violence uh, was ever in his hand, no guile, no deception was ever in his mouth. He had never done anything worthy of of death. So to die, he had to take him, he had to put himself in the place of the forsaken, of the rejected, of the corrupt. And, uh, and God had to allow that, and God had to allow him to experience that as any other human being would experience uh, that moment of death, especially the death of a, of a sinful person. So I think it's part of that pleasure and will of God. I don't, I don't think it's a, a contradiction. Uh, the willingness of God to allow that to happen, uh, even when we even when we put it next to the you know all of the other scriptures and all of the other verses that talk about uh, the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ, I think it comes together fairly seamlessly that God in righteousness must not only condemn sin but must forsake the sinner. Uh, if God doesn't forsake the sinner, then the sinner is, 
is, is not able to feel the full weight and brunt of their sin. Does anyone else have a, a comment or a question on that? Oh, by, by the way, yeah. I, I love the way you read the scriptures initially, though. And I, <laughs> I love the, the, the way you emphasized it. Thank you. Uh, it's hard to go wrong with Isaiah 53. We could we could make about a month of uh, a month of Bible study just out of this one chapter. It's one of the power chapters. Yeah, I know all Scripture is equal and equally valid and equally inspired, but I think we all admit that some parts of Scripture really speak to us uh, in a much more powerful way. And Isaiah 53 is definitely the to me, the what it, I think it's called the Golden Passionel of the Old Testament by Matthew Henry. So I, I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. So why is atonement necessary? Well, first, it's required by God's holiness. We see that in Exodus. We see it in Leviticus and all those atonement offerings. We see it again in Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, I won't read that scripture because I know we're... we're, we're uh, well, you know what, we're not going to get done tonight, but we won't read every scripture. But the holiness of God is an absolute um, requirement for his own character, for his own nature. And it's absolutely necessary uh, when it comes to the atonement. No sin can enter into his presence. No sinner can stand before God. No corruption. You know, think of Isaiah, the same prophet Isaiah, earlier in chapter 6. Think of his reaction when he was brought into the, the courts of the temple where the presence of God was. And the woe is me. The woe be... <laughs> I think we would all have a woe is me moment in the presence of God. And so the, the, the incredible holiness of God is beyond... Uh, description and and you know the, uh, I think it's Paul told Timothy or uh, wrote to Timothy that you know God dwells uh, in this uh, in this light unapproachable light he can't you know, we can't have we would not have any way to access the presence of God without without atonement uh, going back to the Old Testament again. Uh, you know, read in Exodus uh, 29, read in Exodus 30, read in uh, um, Leviticus there what was required just for the priest, the one making the offering, to enter into the temple, to approach the altar. And then the same requirements for the altar itself. The, uh, the altar that stood where the sacrifices were made, the altar, had, the altar itself, the piece of furniture, that the sacrifices were made on had to be atoned for uh, repeatedly, once every seven days, uh, just to be rendered acceptable as a as a place of sacrifice. The priest had to be atoned for every seven days to be able to offer the sacrifice. When we think, you know, the people who think. People who think that sin is no big deal uh, are people who don't think the holiness of God is any big deal. Uh, they, they, 
You know, they see, if you don't see sin for what it is, you're not going to see God for who He is. And if you see God for who He is, you cannot help but understand uh, the real nature of sin and why it requires atonement. Uh, of course, we all know John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. Those verses are very common to us. Uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Uh, atonement is required by the holiness of God, and it's provided by the love of God. So you have this intersection where the holiness of God and the love of God come together. God's righteousness, God's justice, demands that sin be punished, that sin be condemned. But God's love demands that the sinner be saved. And when you have that kind, you know, in any other being, in any other circumstances, you would have a contradiction. You would have, you would have a, 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 an untenable situation. But in God, he found a way through the atonement to both satisfy his holiness and also be true to his character of being love personified. He is able to condemn sin and yet also rescue and redeem the sinner. Great. You know, how, how, how unsearchable are his judgments? How, 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 how are his ways past finding out uh, the unsearchable wisdom of God to come up with a solution that satisfies his whole character is the miracle that is atonement. All right, we were, we were talking earlier about point number five, that atonement manifests the pleasure and will of God. And I, I won't go back over that, but we see not only in Isaiah 53, but we see it also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, that um, God always, uh, from the beginning, had, had it as a purpose to redeem those who fell. That, you know, we, we can talk about why God created a world where sin was possible. Uh, we talked a little bit about that under the doctrine of creation. Uh, but regardless of where we fall on that, we can say with absolute certainty that God always intended to redeem and to, and to atone and to rescue and to ransom those whom sin destroyed. Uh, God is not a reluctant Savior. He's not compelled to save, as I said earlier. He's not some angry deity that is uh, forced to the bargaining table by the sacrifice of Christ. He is a loving Father who, in order to be righteous, in order to be just, must condemn sin. But in his heart, he is always kindly... Uh, uh, disposed towards mercy and towards our, our reconciliation. He, he doesn't want to cut anyone off. He doesn't want to lose any of his children, any part of his creation. And so he is always working to bring people to a place of reconciliation. And the atonement speaks to that. We also talked a little bit about number six, how atonement is 
required to render the sacrifices and those that offer them holy. Uh, we want to understand, uh, again, the absolute incompatibility between God and sin, and that no sin can come into its presence without it being covered, without it being uh, uh, you know, hidden. That, the, that word uh, uh, atonement means covering. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but the nature of God himself makes atonement a necessity. We must, uh, we must understand that God cannot be less than God. He cannot be uh, untrue to his own character and nature, nor can he allow uh, sin or the sinner to go uh, unpunished. Yet in his own nature, he has manifested the love and demonstrated that love to provide a means of reconciliation. Atonement is a covering which protects from wrath or judgment. So where does this word atonement come from? Uh, the pictures come to us very early in Scripture. We know the story of Adam and Eve. We, we know about the serpent in the garden. We know about the prophecy of the seed that will come and uh, bruise the head of the serpent. But you may miss it sometimes if you're, when you're reading Genesis, the very end of that chapter, chapter 3, verse 21, there is a, a verse there that says that God made a covering out of skins and clothed Adam and Eve with it. You remember that the complaint or the confession of Adam and Eve, of why they were hiding from God, was because they were naked. They were their 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 full character and, and nature was was on display. They had sinned. They had they had rebelled against the word of God and the command of God. And even though there would be many generations to come before Christ would be born, before the seed would manifest, God gives us an early picture here himself taking a substitute for Adam and Eve and killing that substitute. We're not told what type of skin was used, but we know that skin comes from a living creature. And a living creature was killed to give up its skin so that Adam and Eve could be covered so that they could continue to live in the presence of God. And that covering is mentioned again in Genesis chapter 6. We hear the story, we know the story of Noah and the ark. And Genesis 6.14 is the first occasion in the scriptures where the word kippur or kippar is used. It is used there when God commands Noah to make a covering or to cover the ark with pitch on the inside and on the out, being uh, the idea there being that when the judgment of God fell upon the earth in the form of the flood, the pitch would keep that judgment, that water, from sinking the ark. And, and this would be by that means 
that Noah and his family would be saved. We probably see the most dramatic and the most well-known demonstration of the concept of covering in the story of the Exodus. We all know, I think, I think we all know the details there where God commands each family uh, and each home to take the blood of the lamb that is slain for the Passover and put it on the doorpost and put it on the lintel and cover the house with the blood so that when the judgment of God comes upon the land in the form of the death angel, that they would be spared. So the earliest ideas that are associated with atonement is of a hiding place or a covering, an umbrella, which protects the one who is covered from the judgment and wrath of God. Uh, The next uh, statement there says that atonement is a propitiation, a sacrifice which turns away the wrath of God. You may have caught that word when we read Romans chapter 3. That word propitiation, again, it's one of those words like atonement that you don't hear in everyday conversation. But uh, while atonement itself means to cover, propitiation is the means by which the covering is achieved. It is the, it is the lid of the mercy seat. It is the sacrifice that uh, <clears throat> pleases God so that his judgment is uh, turned away or is dissipated. Um, Such a covering was necessary and is necessary for God to interact with the world. It would would not even be possible for God to uh, interact with any person if there was not this uh, propitiating sacrifice between us and him. Atonement is vicarious. One suffers to benefit others on behalf of others. We benefit from the suffering of Jesus Christ. He suffers for our sake so that he absorbs the the penalty and we in turn receive Uh, the reward or the blessing. And this vicarious suffering is emphasized in many scriptures, Uh, but of course most expressively there in Isaiah 53, which we've also, which we've already read. Atonement is substitution. One suffers in the place of another. So not only does Christ suffer so that we can receive a reward, but he suffers in our stead, in our place. It is we who truly deserve to suffer. It is we who are, uh, as First Peter puts it, the unjust. Christ the just suffers instead of the unjust. This is a a great mystery. This is a this would be a great miscarriage of justice and any other type of circumstances to punish the innocent instead of the guilty. But in the atonement, Christ becomes one with the guilty and suffers on their behalf. Atonement is a ransom, 
a redemption price that sets free. It's important that we understand, you know, Jesus himself said he came as li- he came to give his life as a ransom for many. We also read there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 that he gave his life as a ransom for everyone, for all people. Now we need to understand this word ransom. I know in the modern movie uh, TV shows uh, you think of a you know a child gets kidnapped and they got to pay a ransom to try to get them back, and that's that's not the biblical idea of ransom. Uh, no payment was made to Satan. No payment was made to the powers of darkness. No payment was made to sin to set us free. Uh, the ransom that was given is the life of Jesus for our sin compromised lives. He offered himself as a captive so that we could go free. I love that verse in Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about him descending into the lower parts of the earth and then leading captivity captive, setting them free. He, uh, you know, he came on a rescue mission from heaven to deliver those who were oppressed by the devil, to deliver those who were in fear of death. His life is the ransom that rescues our lives from death, hell, and the grave. It is, it is a full and complete and total victory for Christ. Let me just go back for, I think I missed one there earlier. All right, let me go back to number 12 there. Atonement is penal. Uh, We get the word penalty from this word penal. It simply means that atonement is in keeping with the prescription of the law. It is punishment and restitution which is demanded by the law. Uh, This is not an act of vengeance. It's not an act of uh, uh, of mercenary uh, uh, or vigilante justice. This is what the law demands. The soul that sins must surely die. And we all understand, I think, uh, the necessity of that, or at least I, I hope we do. And so this atoning act of Christ is in keeping with the penalty that the law prescribes. And it was a just and righteous act. All right. Atonement is satisfaction. It is the full payment of the debt. I mentioned ransom earlier, and this goes with that. And we need to understand something here. Sometimes, and and I understand in our worship and our prayers, we will sometimes make references to our debt of sin. And he paid the debt he did not owe. And I owed a debt I could not pay. And, and I, I, just, I just want us to be very careful with our language when we, underst- when we understand this concept of debt. The debt we owe to God is not a debt of sin, per se. Sin is the cause for the debt but is not what is owed. What is owed to God is not sin. What is owed to God is righteousness. 
The debt is one of righteousness. We are incapable of rendering to God what he is rightfully due. Our obedience, our worship, our service, our love, our, uh, our submission, our surrender. And so it, because sin prevents us from rendering such righteousness and justice before God, we go into debt. Uh, we owe a debt of love, a debt of peace, a debt of faith. And because we are incapable or unable to pay it, uh, we are in a state of needing someone to satisfy the debt on our account. And that's how we want to understand how Christ satisfies our debt. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That debt of righteousness, that debt of holiness uh, is, is a positive benefit of atonement. Atonement is reconciliation. You might have seen or heard the statement that atonement is at one meant. And that's a, a shorthand way of kind of understanding that atonement is what makes it possible to restore the relationship between God and human beings. Our sin has separated us from God, Isaiah chapter 59. God wants to save, but requires a reconciliation, a way of bridging the gap, a way of removing the obstacles. And atonement does that for us and for him. By atonement, we are reconciled to God, and God is reconciled to us. Atonement is victory over the powers of darkness, over all the principalities and powers of the world. You may, some of you raised in uh, Anglican, Episcopalian type churches, may be familiar with the atonement theory called Christus Victor, the victory of Jesus. And certainly we subscribe to the victory of Jesus over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Colossians chapter 2 makes it very plain that Christ utterly, that the death of Christ and the blood of Christ utterly disarms, defeats, and destroys those who would accuse or who would use the law, who would use the handwriting of ordinances to condemn us. Praise God. I'm so grateful to know the enemy has nothing on us. He is completely disarmed because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. All right? Atonement is a moral influence to cease from sin. You will hear some people talk about the moral theory of the atonement, and basically this is what they're talking about, that since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, we are to be armed in the same way, in the same mind, because he who suffers in the flesh ceases from sin. So Christ's atoning work is an example to us, a call to us to follow his example, to put to death the desires of the flesh, 
to live in the Spirit and to cease from all sin. Atonement is obtained through a blood sacrifice. I think most of us are familiar with Leviticus 17. Verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. I know um, in modern Christianity, uh, the blood of Jesus and the blood in general has been sort of de-emphasized, has been regulated to sort of a secondary role. You will, you may attend many, many churches these days and never hear in either worship or in the Word mention of the blood of Christ. Some are embarrassed by the idea of blood sacrifice. They think it makes the church sound uh, more like a pagan cult or some, uh, you know, some uh, uh, you know, out of touch, out of tune with the modern times uh, organization. But the Bible makes no hesitation in establishing the fact that the life, which is represented by the blood, is the only fair payment for sin. A life for a life, a soul for a soul. This is you know this is the absolute justice uh, of the law of God. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. While we may not be entirely comfortable <laughs> with this idea, this is at the heart of atonement. When we sin, our life becomes forfeit. We come under condemnation. We are come under a death sentence. The soul that sins shall surely die. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. We only are allowed to continue to live by offering a substitute for our own life. Something must take our place on the sacrificial altar. Something else must be offered up that is uncontaminated, uncorrupted, unblemished to buy us the, uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, atone for our sin. So when we think of the blood of Jesus, when we think of the blood sacrifice and its atoning work, it may make us, or it should make us uncomfortable. It should drive home the absolute horror that sin, uh, or the price that sin exacts. The wages of sin is death. If we are going to sin, if we're going to continue in sin, if we're going to live, all we like sheep have gone astray, to go back to Isaiah 53, we need to understand the consequences. I, you know, I, I think one of the reasons, you know, in my experience, and maybe some of you uh, 
uh, been around as long as I have, can testify here. In my experiences, the relationship between those churches and denominations that emphasize the blood of Jesus and the blood of Christ and the atonement and the call or the culture of holiness and holy living and the putting away of sin are inextricably linked together. Any, any church that, um, that hides or puts away or de-emphasizes the blood of Jesus, in my experience, is a church or a Christian or a, per, a, 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 a Christian family or a Christian home that does not understand or, uh, or emphasize the blood of Jesus is, is very often a compromised, very immoral, very uh, uh, sort of anything goes type of Christian living. Is, is that, does that make sense to you? Is, 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 is that been your experience on the call tonight? Uh, is that a fair statement? Let me just put it that way. The more, uh, the less a church emphasizes the blood, the less committed they are to holiness. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. Uh, I agree. Yep. yep. Okay. All right. You're allowed to disagree. I just want to make sure I was, you understood what I was trying to say. The more we understand how horrible sin is, the more we understand the price that's paid for it, the the more likely we are to want to have nothing to do with it. All right. Um, let me get through this end uh, end of this tonight, and then we'll um, we'll be done. Atonement allows God to deal with humanity and mercy. Uh, the reality is, had the Lamb not been slain from the foundation of the world, Adam and Eve would have died. And every subsequent generation would have died with them. Uh, only because of the covering of the blood of Christ has God been able to deal with humanity from a position of mercy and grace. Paul even talks about God passing over the sins previously committed. Uh, in another place, he talks about God winking <laughs> at sin uh, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it's only possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, atonement is only possible through the blood of Jesus. Atonement, the atonement work is finished. No further sacrifice is required. There's nothing else for us to do. It is finished. It is done. Um, Jesus has sat down. He's offered the sacrifice once and for all. When he comes again, it will not be as a sacrificial lamb, but it will be to put away sin once and for all. Uh, atonement is conditional. Uh, continuing in sin after accepting atonement invalidates the sacrifice and restores one to the state of wrath. We cannot take the atonement for granted. We cannot assume. I think this is where we get into a bit of a... Um, conflict with our Calvinist brothers and sisters, and uh, I, I don't know if I have time, I don't have time tonight to really do justice to the differences between the two positions on atonement, but uh, let's just say that our position sees atonement as conditional uh, and requiring 
uh, a faithful response from those who have been atoned for. Uh, that being said, atonement is unlimited and universal, meaning that uh, the atonement is sufficient for every man, woman, child, ever born, ever to be born. Uh, no one is excluded from the atonement except by their own choice. Atonement is what makes salvation possible. It is the act of God within God, whereby the way is open to approach God in faith and receive mercy. Without atonement, it wouldn't matter how much faith we had. Without atonement, it wouldn't matter how many worship songs we sang or how many sacrifices we offered. Atonement is God's part of the salvation uh, plan. It's the part that God did, the part that only God could do. But because God has already done it, the way is open. And salvation is now possible for everyone uh, who believes. Comments, questions, concerns on any part of atonement that we've covered tonight? Oh, Bishop, um, yes. is it fair to say that Christianity um, is the only religion that depicts a God who sacrifices his life because of the love for his creation? To my In most knowledge, religions, it's the other way around that, you know, you have to offer a sacrifice to appease your God, but our God offered his life to reconcile us to himself. To my knowledge, Christianity is utterly unique in that. There is no, no religion, no other faith that I can think of, uh, unless somebody knows differently, that offers a way of reconciliation uh, to God like Christianity. And uh, I, was, I was reading my devotion earlier tonight, and uh, the writer there said something to the effect of um, talking, talking a little bit about atonement, actually. said something to the effect that um, what makes Christianity so unique and so special is that other religious are built on the lives of their founders. Christianity is the only one that is built on the death of its founder. And, uh, and, and of course, there was a lot more to that. And we certainly don't ignore Jesus' life. But without this death, without this atoning work, the life of Jesus would, would have been remarkable, but it wouldn't have been uh, any value to us in coming to God. We'd still be uh, separated from God by our sins. And it kind of goes back to where we started tonight, the relationship between the incarnation and the atonement. He came uh, specifically to do this atoning work. Uh, and this was the, for this reason, he said, the Son of Man has come into the world. Uh, so, yes, Christianity, as far as I know, is the only faith that offers uh, this kind of mercy and this kind of grace. All right. Well, praise the Lord. We'll, uh, we'll end it here. 
we'll pick up next week. I think if I, uh, if I know my mind, the Lord doesn't change it, we're going to talk a little bit more about the blood of Jesus and salvation as we look at sort of the other side of the equation and what uh, we know now what God has done. Uh, now we need to start understanding a little bit what our role is or what our part is to play. All right. Father, I give you thanks tonight for, for the atonement work of Jesus Christ. For we know that in that atoning work, not only are our sins forgiven, but by those stripes, we are healed. Lord, this is not some theological question. This is about life and death. People that you love, people that we love, are suffering tonight in their bodies, organs shutting down, unable to breathe because of this sickness, this virus. Lord, we, we understand tonight the power of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We call upon his name. We call upon your name, Lord Jesus. We pray for these who are sick. We ask that they be healed. Let miracles take place, God. We know that the doctors are doing their best, and thank you for the doctors, for the nurses, for all those in the health care who are working so hard to keep people alive, to minister to the sick. But, Father, we know that life and death are in your hands. And so we lift them up before you tonight. We lift our nation before you. We lift the nation of Israel. We pray tonight for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for an end to this conflict. We pray, O oh God, tonight that you would show yourself mighty on behalf of your people. Lord, preserve and protect. Deliver from the hand of the enemy. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world tonight, for all that they're dealing with and all that they're struggling with. We pray the peace of God the love of Christ, the communion of the Holy Spirit would be with them all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, class. Great to talk with you tonight. Look forward to speaking with you again next week. God bless. Everyone have a good evening. And uh, if the Lord should come, let's all meet together at the throne. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Have a good this night. has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 745 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida 33312.
God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.